This week on Laser, we discuss designing for the defense industry, robots and the DARPA Robotics Challenge, a newly proposed form of space propulsion called the E-SAIL, and the extension of the International Space Station mission until at least 2020. The show's a little bit long, but it's pretty good, so stick around. Everybody, welcome to Laser, the Material Science Podcast. Uh, Laser is let's agree, science and engineering are rad. I'm Cameron Copus, and I'm a PhD student studying material science at Arizona State University. Um, Today, I have as my co-hosts Chase. Who, uh, Chase? Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm a bum. I don't have a job. I was laid off from. an aerospace engineering company that actually is doing some of the work that's mentioned in the stories today, so I feel pretty, you know, authoritative to comment on that. So my background is also materials engineering, and I have, my work experience is in aerospace. All right, and we have uh, Alex here, he's been on the show more than a few times. A few times, yes. What do I do that's fancy that I can say right now? You're Grad student in uh, material science. I'm a grad student in, in material science. I have an undergraduate in physics. And as it looks, I'm becoming a metrologist. Because all I do is figure out how to measure something in some slightly better way than how it was previously done. Is that a metrologist? That's what metrology is, the study of measurement. Okay. They, yeah. They, that pays pretty well. Yeah, metrology is probably a bit boring, but metrologists are probably some of the most valuable people in the tech industry because they can yeah, say, sure. hey, look, here's the thing that you couldn't know, and now I figured out a way for you to know it. And they go, wow, we know that now. We can design an entire line of products based off of that knowledge. <laughs> here's $200,000 a year. Well, hey, if you get a job at NIST, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. NIST is a great place to work. All right. Yeah, it feels like that would be too much of a crowd of people just... <laughs> Numbers. Also, I'd be sitting around our, going, our third voice. Yes. Hi, yes. I'm Greg. Hello. I'm a PhD candidate from material science and engineering here at Arizona State University. I mostly work with organic LEDs and organic photovoltaics, a lot of organic semiconductors, basically. Uh, currently, I guess. Yeah, I still got to figure out where the hell I'm going for all that for all that stuff later in life. I'm not setting myself up to be a metrologist, possibly more of a process engineer, hopefully in the realm of brewing beer. Anyway, that's one of them. <laughs> we could call you a student. Student. From uh, Guinness in the whatever, 18-whatevers, the guy who invented the student's tea oh, test yeah. for statistics. He was, uh, yeah, he was a chemist yeah, for, I just for learned the Guinness name. company. 
I can't remember his real name either, but... His pseudonym was actually Student when yeah. he published his work about that's the T-test. That's and all why that. it's called the Student's T-test yep. for significance. He came up with a statistical thing, and he didn't want to publish under his name because he wanted to protect his employer, who was Guinness. Oh, I, well, and they didn't want him spending all his free time on actually do, actually publishing work. Yeah, so he this did it on his own time. Yeah. He came up with it at work, used it at work, and then he published it to... Do it, and now that's the statistical test. Oh, God, now I'm going to have to look this up. That can happen a little bit later. <laughs> all right. Um, anyway, well, none of that has anything to do with any of the stories we're talking about today. No, but that's an all... interesting It's anecdote. fun. It's totally yeah. fun. Sci-fi. The theme today is a sort of sci-fi, space, robots. Uh, and metal. And metal. Yeah, well, it's all the future. That's, no, that mm-hmm. even with the metal, it's still sci-fi, man. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have, some of us metalurgists here will have a lot of criticisms to level at, like, the story the we're talk about at the technique, but yeah. the concept is that we're basically inventing the uh, what do they call it? the replicator from Star Trek. Yeah, closest thing so far. Yeah, kids. Yeah. I mean, that's going to put a strain on the old dilithium crystals, right? Oh <laughs> boy, you have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> okay, where are we going to start with strap that? In, we're do that strap in, folks. It's Get your be a lot of Star Trek. A lot of Star Trek jokes. Strap in. <laughs> your okay. beryllium sphere is ready. Come and claim it. <laughs> and lots of space metal. Space metal. So the the first first story we want to talk about uh, is the recent uh, DARPA robotics challenge. And one of the articles about this was in the New York Times. The headline is, By sci-fi standards, newest robots may disappoint. Yeah. So... That's... uh, Part for the course for like a couple of decades now and will be for a little while still. Maybe. Well, remember that Toshiba robot that was looking like an astronaut. Or, no, that was a Honda That's robot. Honda. You're thinking of Asimov. Asimov. Asimov was awesome. He was like so that. super cool in the 90s. He's very advanced for his time. But as as far as now, now goes, he's very clunky. His movements are... Very, very inefficient. Very slow, inefficient. He can do a lot of detailed visual surface analysis, though. Like, he can say, hmm, that surface is inclined by this much. When I put my foot down on it, I'm going to have to tilt it by this much and lean forward this much in order to balance properly. But is that how you do it? Do you, you don't put your foot That's forward my, after. You you have reverse feedback where you, you're you just running, not you, looking at the right, ground. Right. You, you, you make a movement and then you adjust based off the feedback that you get after the movement is made and after the contact with the surfaces are made and the gravity is felt and, That's the like, and things like that. Have they actually yeah. taught it? Actually, this is a question. I mean, I'm not a biology guy, but how fast are our nerve responses compared to, like, a computer processor. Kilohertz. On, on an order of kilohertz. Yeah, sure. the, so they're slower. Neuron neuron firing frequencies are an order of kilohertz. I don't know how many. All I know is they're on an order of kilohertz. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying, but I'm saying compared, in comparison to, like, a computer processor processing yeah. tactile data that it gets back from the other. A computer well, a is a little bit question. faster. And it'll well, get faster. Theoretically, yeah. Uh, like, a, if you have a direct connection... Even with with metal wiring, it's still a little bit faster than it mm-hmm. because it's electronic transfer instead of ionic transfer. Your body uses ionic transfer to transmit the electronic signals instead of just metal electrons. Okay, so, 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 is the limit, so the limit isn't necessarily the communication speed. It's the fact that we can't program, like... I think it's the bandwidth and the the programming. It's just it, hard. It's a, it's a bandwidth thing, mostly... Yeah. The other thing is and processing time it's about to... efficiency. 
our brains have evolved over very long periods of time. So everything that they do, they don't do it because somebody said, hmm, you know, you, sh- you should have a program or a-, a system that works like this and it'll accomplish that. They do it that way because they simply evolved due to a very long, arduous process of responding to feedback. You know, so everything they do is substantially more efficient. Computationally efficient. Computationally efficient and handles multi-threading in ways that our current computers don't. As far as individual, like, like frequencies and individual operations, our computers are blazingly fast compared to our brains, but it's the sheer number of things going on at once and how many parallel processes that can be strung together into some sort in of result brain. that are, in, yeah. that is where our brains are superior to our computers. So what you're saying is that if they could find a way to shrink down an NSA size computer to a maybe a robot thing, that would actually then somebody still has to program it. Well, there's also the interconnect. So interconnect is one mm-hmm. of the largest um, one of the largest parts of today's processors where the speed is lost. Mm-hmm. That's because one it's of the reasons. 2D. What? Because it's normally a two D circuit. It is that. It's also due to the the, the physics of Things like induction and resistance and yep. just the dimensions of the interconnect themselves. So That's why we've gotten so much faster, just by making our computers smaller. Just, right, exactly. That's why scaling creates higher speed. It's because the sm- shorter, smaller interconnect channels create uh, just less uh, RC delay, right? Because you have resistance times capacitance. It's going exactly. to be your time constant. Well, and building off of that, that's actually, probably, that's actually what's limiting our space technology is that to make those interconnect distances smaller, we will risk losing the radiation. They, they become far more susceptible to radiation damage. And yeah. that's one of the things that yep. we, we dealt with a lot at you know in, in space systems. It was always, what's the optimal size of an IC or a hybrid to make it... Maximum performance. Maximum performance to minimal risk of radiation damage. That would be catastrophic radiation damage. Yeah. Radiation hardening right. is its own science, though. Yeah. I mean, we, I worked right. in that for a little while. It's well, a lot have, of work. Well, you have to do the rad... Well, you know, like, the thing that they do is usually do the rad hardened package, and that's the easiest But without way the package, like, that's complicated. It's but you can without, do it. I mean... But without the... But I'm saying with the package, it's a lot... Just doing the package is the latest, but that's also what's limiting the size. Yeah. So it's like... It's package a, is weight... And mass and all sorts of stuff, or weight and volume, mass and volume, whatever. Yeah. That you can't really compromise on if that's what you're doing. So you need to come up with geometries that are more radiation hard. Yeah. Yeah. How can you make a geometry that's radiation hard? Because there's know, ones that like. You're not just going to do a sphere that's a orientation. Of yeah. The, it depends on the orient, orientation of the board relevant to like you know the sun if you're going to launch something into orbit. So if you can make a chip. That's maybe not flat. Most of it is stacked on top of itself. But stacked, that would make certain layers more susceptible. Certain other layers. layers are yeah, more susceptible that orientation but because it goes through more. But a stack, but those, but those stack chips also have their own issues. That yes, was, that was a, that was a huge. That was actually and actually most uh, most NASA and government approved space programs just. Forbid the use of any sort of stacked, you know, stacked material. Okay, because then one cosmic ray takes out the whole exactly. stack, and that's and that's that's catastrophic. So they actually they right. on the side of safety. It's one of those things where space is actually like thirty years behind the rest of technology because they're waiting. Oh, to yeah. 
Because they're waiting until new tech is proven before they risk launching it into space. Yeah. All right. When also, and there's also just all the intercontinental ballistic missiles, a lot of those still rely on, well, they probably phased out most of the punch cards by now, but a lot of times they still rely on technology that's just not not just less radiation vulnerable, but also less that's security I, vulnerable. I have to disagree with you there, Greg. It's not. Oh, they finally get past that. It's not so that it's like they use the punch card thing. It's that I worked on the gra- uh, ground-based mid-course defense program for yeah. for the missile defense agency, and I can say definitively that nobody uses a punch card, and they do replace the missiles that they use every twenty or so years. Yeah, so I was saying I didn't know when they got phased out. Yeah. So if that if so if they were using the punch card system twenty years ago, every one of those missiles has been replaced. Our li- the lifetime we worked with for missiles on the missile defense program are you have to, it has to last twenty years in storage. And it has That's to it. it has to be able to fire at the end of twenty years as well as it does at the end of the year, and then they replace it. Okay. That's my understanding. I don't Again, I didn't have security clearance. I don't know the exact specifics, but they, I, as because they were only giving us like it has to last twenty years. I can't imagine they say it's got to last twenty five years if they made it last twenty years. If they wanted it to last twenty five years, they make it last twenty five years. They make that the requirement. Yeah. Actually, probably they phase them out probably sooner than twenty years because if they wanted to make it twenty five years, they'd make the requirement thirty five years because that's right. that's how. Space, space. You need a margin of safety. Space systems yeah. is all about a margin of, like, an obscene margin of safety, like three times your operating risk. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. It's insane how many. Uh, it's, it's, and that's very because fun. you get one shot. You well, know. and it's very frustrating too because you work with a lot of parts that the U.S. has deemed no good, no good stuff that you can't use, but. All every other space program says yes, you can use that, and it's and a, a lot of that boils down to the uh, ROHS compliance. I don't know what ROHS stands for, but that's the uh, that's the uh, it's a pollution standard. Okay. All Western European countries adhere to a pollution standard where it says that uh, there can't be that. Like it ever, doesn't have too much lead. Too everything much has cadmium. To, everything has to be lead and cadmium free, and something occupational health and safety. We, I, don't, I have no idea, but they have, um, but all, U.S. stuff, our solders are still lead-based to prevent uh, tin whiskers. Right. And But everybody else uses lead-free solder. Exactly, and you get a lot of kind of confrontation because the people who make most of our chip, most chips, period, are just... Or China and Indochina and India, and there it's and illegal to use the lead solder there in a lot of places. Not in China, in, in, in Europe. Yes, so they make it. So they'll make it. They'll make it for both markets, and it's just one of those things where it's like you know, they, you know, if they make a chip that's only got tin free, uh, lead free solder, you can only market that in Europe because most everybody who who will use that chip in the U.S. will say it's forbidden because it's. Tin lead-free solder, yeah. Tin or lead-free solder sucks. I mean, it works, but it it's not as good. No, it's. I mean, it's not as good. I'm not going to deny that it's not as good, and that you can't get that. You know, honestly, if you have three percent lead, it's way better than even if you have only three percent lead. Yeah, it's still way better than not having any lead at all. But at the same time, it's like you know, 
quite frankly, the margin of safety you're working with in space space systems is that is even if you had a tin whisker form, it probably wouldn't be a failure. You know, okay. They're just being careful. Everybody's just being very careful. It might just be a legacy thing because, like in our lab, everything we fix, we just fix it with leaded solder. We have lead-free solder, so it's not like it's a policy. It's just we we know that the lead solder works better, so why not just use it? We're just careful not to breathe it. I think that our scenario is a bit different, though, because we use it on a small scale, and it's usually in the sense that we're repairing some sort of old power supply or a meter or yeah. a relay or something like that from the 80s or like from the 60s 60s we have stuff that old yeah we have a lot of stuff from the 60s well how old would you say how old would you say is that power supply in the hall setup that one's probably from the 80s or 90s, from the 80s. okay so we, we we have a lot of old stuff and i think that you know for the most part we're we're soldering a new capacitor or, you know, a lead was attached to something that short-circuited and it melted and it, it's not, we're, we're not using large quantities of it. And the things yeah. that we have, we're not throwing them out. We're not throwing them out. We're not, I'm, we're not doing too much with them. They sit in a room and they don't. I'm, oh, I'm going to point out about ROHS. It's not so much that, yes, it's, I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it is unnecessarily restrictive on things that if you do control your usage of them, they're not that bad. But on the other hand, I can mm-hmm. kind of understand that it's like, yes, you personally don't use a lot of that, you know, the, the stuff you don't want leaking out into the environment. But on the other hand, you don't use a, you don't use a lot, but then the university a couple miles down the road doesn't use a lot, and the other lab doesn't use a lot, and this person doesn't use a lot, and this person doesn't use a lot, but together it's enough. Yeah, I see. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So it's it's not like it's good for everybody to use it. So what's the problem with with lead-free solder? Well, the performance is lessened. What, 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 specifically, what aspect of it? It doesn't, it does not melt as readily. Or it has a much, it does not, it doesn't, it, like the, you know, it's... The mechanical properties are worse, so like a lead, fr- a chip that's been soldered on with a lead-free solder, yeah. heating and cooling cycles, eventually it will just break, while a lead solder will not what about break for an order of magnitude more. So, so I think problem, a lot of problems like this can maybe be mitigated by how you package it. There's That's, a lot of different packaging protocols and packaging architectures. But it's attaching the packaging is the problem. Like... A lot of well, the solder is not the only thing that, that attaches the packaging, depending on how you do it. If you do something like That's a flip, true. like what's called a, a flip chip uh, packaging, it's basically where you have like the top of a chip, right, and you have the interconnect at the top of the chip because you start off with the transistors at the lower level and the interconnect is built up on top of it, right? So you have the highest level of the interconnect on the top of the chip, and then what you do is you basically flip the chip over, and prior to doing this, you've attached some like solder bumps solder they have, right? Yeah. And you flip the chip over, and you basically put it on to the HDI or the you know whatever type of intermediate interconnect you might have, and then there's a heating cycle which causes a fusion between that and the yeah package yeah, so that a, it sits on, and then they have an underfill. The underfill is a like a polymer type, like a, maybe it might be like a Teflon type base. I actually don't know what the what the underfill is. It's some is. polymer. Yeah, it's I, not I, I know. I, yeah, there's. There, I know what you're talking. About. It's not Teflon. I know exactly what you're talking about, though. But the problem with all of that is you could do all of that, 
Or you could spend 10 cents for the length of solder it takes to, like, solder, the tin lead solder that takes to solder everything together. But even this doesn't solve all of the problems, because the problem with lead-free solder is it forms voids. Like, it disconnects. It mechanically separates itself. So you're saying it doesn't doesn't really properly wet... Is what you're saying? It doesn't. Yeah, really, that's a big problem. It, it yeah. doesn't so wet what? What what metal interfaces to tin are problematic? All of them. All of them. <laughs> it delaminates. Oh, yeah, right. It delaminates. It the whiskers is when you actually have extra outgrowths of tin forming and or tin heavy concern, alloy. And the concern yeah. with the whiskers is that they'll create shorts yeah. between the interfaces, especially. And these on, are very small, single crystal whiskers is what it's called, and it just shoots out from the side of a ball. It'll short out with the next and This is This isn't this is uh, uh, sort of, some sort of tin growth phenomenon that happens over time. Yes. yes. I see. With heat. And since computer chips are hot, because so, you have to run current through them. So why does lead mitigate this problem? Lead makes it... Makes the eutectic phase more stable, I think. I forget what else, though. That must be it. It must make the eutectic phase more stable. Yeah. Or it's just, it, there's more of the metal that's just in the stable phase. Tin whiskers generally form when there's, like, pure tin around. And you don't see whiskers form off, um, you don't see whiskers off form an alloy. off of an alloy of tin. So it's any like, alloy. As, yeah. But, but especially if it's, like, eutectic. But that's, Alloy? Well, that's the thing. The reason I think it's like, you know, if you felt the need to, if it was a good solder, you could use tin copper, too. Yeah. You wouldn't have to use But lead. tin copper has a higher melting point. Exactly. Than tin. That's, that's, that's the, the problem. The appeal of using a tin lead alloy is that the melting point is on the eutectic is so low that you can heat it up with, like, you know, just basically, a, you know, with, with a plug in. A little IC blower thing. Yeah, and that's all it takes, and then you can just oh, pour, too hard. pour you just pour more stuff in there, and then it's it's good. Whereas if you had like a tin copper alloy, you'd have to heat it up quite a bit, and that'd be dangerous, and that would also that would. What are some What are some other metals that have very low melting temperatures? I think tin and lead are the lowest. It's, really? it's pretty much Mercury, almost a rule Mercury. of thumb. Mercury has oh, the lowest. Well, okay. Mercury, Except gallium. that's toxic. Gallium, but then that's expensive. Yeah, uh, no gallium. Lead, indium lead, is lead is low. Oh, indium is even worse than gallium for price. Yeah. Indium is super but that's expensive. The thing. Lead is the perfect storm of low price point and the ideal properties. And that's why the, yeah. co- the research behind... It just happens to be toxic. The research behind... Uh, a lead, a good lead-free solder is such a. We have two professors at ASU working full time just on lead-free solder balls. That's, that's Alfred and Chowla are working and that basically is, oh, full time currently. Oh, I, I actually did some. I actually did work in support of Alfred's uh, lead-free solder thing. He actually wanted to know about uh, it was copper, silver, and copper titanium alloys. That's not bad. And that was... We probably shouldn't talk about other people's research. Unless... Oh, that was a long time ago, so it's probably published. I don't know if it was published. I don't know if it went anywhere. It's okay. just one of those things where I don't think that anything that particularly went... I, it was... It also... My support work was, is this even feasible? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But lead tin solder is the best. And it's the best that ever will be. Like... Well, all right. I can't say that. Well, we, It's the best that we can... We have an idea of right now. So the other one that's actually okay that gets used a lot in space systems when you like use, that's okay for space systems and gets used in place of tin lead is I believe it's copper, silver, palladium. Oh wow! 
And but then you're combining copper, silver, and palladium, so it's not so, going to be a very good mass production option. And it's not the cheapest. Yeah, they're not the cheapest no, materials that's in what the I world. Mean. That's, no, what, that's what I mean. It's but it's but it has excellent properties, and they dig and they like it. They they dig it. Well, we're getting into metallurgy a little early. Uh, this story is supposed to be about <laughs> the DARPA Robotics Challenge. We did not talk we about We got robots. off topic. We did not talk about robots. I wasn't going to say nope. anything. We are really 25 minutes in and we have not talked about I'm robots I'm having too for much damn second. fun. You let me know when you want me to talk about robots. <laughs> All right. Please. Well, tell us about <laughs> Wait, I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. I'm going to start robots. off with saying what the DARPA Robotics Challenge is. Okay. So, DARPA is the this government agency... Okay. Yeah, it stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Association. Agency. Agency. A- agency. It's responsible for you spending a lot of your tax money on BS. I'll tell you that really? right now. For sure. It could be worse. <laughs> I don't know. I like DARPA projects. DARPA has yeah. had some interesting At least, yeah, But that's because you've never worked in the defense industry. DARPA projects... They're the crazy ones. They're insane, and quite frankly, they 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 most of the time they just piss away money. They're terrible. Uh, okay, but the ones that do work, but they the support that, the they stuff that's amazing. Yeah. That's, they support the. They, I'm not. You have, it's the pie in the sky agency. That's well. I'll defend. I'll say that that's true. I also can't support all the crap that DARPA funds. DARPA funds insane stuff. They, they funded they that really airship. Do. That actually got funded, and ours did not. So I'm fairly certain well, DARPA was also responsible for the that the 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 psych project that the men that stare at goats was yeah. responsible for, which is just yeah, it was it was giving so, people LSD to see if they became psychic was DARPA. DARPA yeah. DARPA also I, they had some really great cost effective ones. They used to pump uh, pump static directly at Soviet listening posts. <laughs> To try to convince the Soviets that it was a new kind of code, so they'd spend a lot of money trying to code break it. <laughs> Did it work? I don't... We don't know. We, I mean, I guess it worked because the Russians ran out of money. So, uh, USA! USA! Of course. Interesting. Yes. So, this DARPA robotics challenge is... It has been many years in the making and what it is is basically it's every year they have robotics challenges for companies to bring their robots to and uh try to do challenges i guess that's that's i keep saying challenges has so, it been every year i think it's been i want to spend a little bit less frequent than there's that been a few years there was like three been big car ones the no the the self-driving car thing is separate Oh really? That's yeah. That there was, was a, this is like based off of that because that was such a great success. Right. Okay. So this robotics challenge uh next year the challenge is for a 2 million dollar prize for the team that completes all of these a team that completes all of these objectives and if two, more, more than one team completes it the best one. Uh this year if you won the team that wins is allowed to apply for a million dollars in funding for their robot for next year. So the team that won this year is most likely to win next year because they have an extra million dollars. Also, it was Google. Well, that's kind of well, the Google next thing we need to talk about. All right. Company. Yeah. There yeah. are... Google acquired seven major robotics companies last year in 2013, uh, including the two giant ones, Shaft and Boston Dynamics. Shaft? Yeah. Shaft is S-C-H-A-F-T. It's a Japanese company from a bunch of Japanese... I can't remember the name of the university. So that's the other competitor besides Boston Dynamics, the big Well, there, big were, one? there were a bunch of competitors. Oh, the big I don't, one? 
Yeah, Boston, Boston Dynamics has a bunch of robots. Boston this, Dynamics made the made the the, Atlas, the big dog. The scary dog. Thing. Yeah, they, they made the, they the, actually have the two big dog, dog models. They, they have two, two dog models. Oh. They have the big dog and they have the LS three. Isn't the LS three the cheetah? No, they have the cheetah is a different thing. Oh, okay. So the cheetah is basically the cheetah I've seen run about thirty miles per hour. It's insane. That's impressive. It's very fast. Um, I think honestly I should probably file a lawsuit against Boston Dynamics because they have been stealing all of their designs from my nightmares. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of have. Yeah, right. Uh, they should access my nightmares. They'd have some robots we'd all have problems with real fast. That's, so, pass. <laughs> Google has this secret robotics project. Google's, supposedly, Google's also building some mysterious thing in the middle of San Francisco Bay. Those guys are up to something. <laughs> I think so they have accessed strange alien magic machines, Maybe. and they are starting to create some sort of code production that will actually give us runes. That will teleport us to space. This I is think, actually called the Stargate. I think Occam's yeah. Razor because tells us that this is the most likely solution. Google also... You guys. Did, didn't they also announce the Immortality Project last year? I think that was the April 20, Fool's joke. The 2045 Project? That's a real thing, 2045 Yeah, project. but that's a different thing. Wake up, have... sheeple. This is all a setup for Skynet. Could be, yeah. Well, we I already... hope I own Skynet when so... it occurs. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, so Google bought all these companies. The project, the the challenges that these robots have to do, there are eight challenges, and they are: the robot has to drive a car, remove debris, attach a hose, climb a ladder, navigate terrain, open a spring-loaded door, break through a wall, or climb over a wall. I'm not sure which. Drink malt liquor. I steal a cigar, <laughs> and open a valve. cheese it. And Ben Girders. <laughs> <laughs> so this year, none of the competing teams actually competed all, completed all of the challenges, uh, which is kind of what this New York Times article is all about. They're saying that it's 2014 and we were promised robots that can do all sorts of cool stuff, and yet none of them can. Um, we're getting there. I think we're we don't getting need there. Funding for that anymore. So the I don't know exactly which tasks were completed and which ones weren't. But the robot from Shaft is the one that won. Shaft is one of the companies that Google bought again. Um, it says out of a possible thirty-two points, Shaft scored twenty-seven. Uh, the next competitor used the Boston Dynamics Atlas robot, also owned by Google now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next competitor score only scored twenty points out of thirty-two. Wait, so Google owns Shaft already, and then they bought Boston Dynamics? Yes. Google owns all of the best robotics companies. Dear God They're up to something. Yeah. So, Skynet. Right. Well, except Skynet. um, Yeah, Skynet. That's right. I was forgetting that Terminators had legs. (laughs) They do. (laughs) They do. They don't always have to. I mean, you remember the fourth movie that really sucked with Christian Bale? They had motorcycles that were just robo-motorcycles? I've actually never seen a Terminator movie. All right. So, Robots. DARPA, Robots. DARPA did not create a time travel robot. Thank God. No. Even though I'm sure they had a couple billion dollars in their budget for a time travel robot, they probably did not create Probably a time not. Although robot. Google might have. I think they're up to something. They've I, got a bunch of barges out in the middle of San Francisco Bay. Well, it's that's top probably secret. Their it's scary. Data center. I don't know what it is. It's scary. I suspect that it has something to do with Google aliens over the world. Okay. Ancient aliens. It's I not ancient aliens. aliens are here. I do. They're real. This aliens. is not. This is not. This is Ali- not. I met co- the aliens guy. Yeah. This is I not coast him. to coast, man. So, I I kind of want to talk about the robots 
Yes. Because uh, the Boston Dynamics robot looks a lot like uh, a Max Headroom robot. I did see the videos. Wait, so, um, wait, Max Headroom, like the the new Coke commercial Max Headroom? Or was it Pepsi? What? Who did Max Headroom? The guy from the 80s. Max Headroom was a sci-fi show in the 80s. It was like a dystopian yeah, based future. Yeah, based on a commercial for really? Coke or Pepsi. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah. That. Interesting. Yeah. Because it looks... That's what it. That's what that Boston Dynamics Atlas robot looks like to me. Atlas and has a lot of capabilities. Atlas is great. Atlas, but I've seen Atlas do jumping jacks. I've seen Atlas do jump squats. But apparently not as many capabilities as the Shaft robot. Shaft, huh? Because the shaft robot beat it by seven points. Yeah. Oh, the point system were it was like I think it was it three points. Well, I think it was three points if you could complete it with automated. Yeah, three three bonus points if you complete yeah. it automated. One point if you just complete it. Uh, there was two, something else too. Yeah, there were a couple of contestants that were actually picking out where to place the feet of their robots. So like, they were having that level of non-autonomy. Yeah. For some contestants, and some of them were uh, were remote controlled. The the key problem that all these robots really have is that their power source is a tether. They have to have a wire that hangs to them, and have to. Boston Dynamics got a little ways without having to do that. Well, for some of their smaller robots, I've never seen big any dog. of their big. Well, except for, yeah, Big Dog. Okay, big, well, Big Dog is designed for that. Big Dog yeah. is designed as a payload carrier, and the LS3 is designed as a heavyweight payload carrier. The Big Dog is basically a version of LS3, as far as I understand it, which is supposed to be better suited for navigating hairy terrain. And I've seen oh, videos yeah. of the thing getting, you know, side kicked and yeah. stuff, and it stays yeah. up, and it, it's pretty impressive, but. As far as the humanoid robotics go, the thing that I noticed about the Atlas that really impressed me was the the delicacy in the movements of the torso in terms of rotation. Something like it crouches, crouches a bit, and almost like it's like in an alert crouch position, and it will rotate its torso left and right. In it's it's very smooth. It's 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 nice. It's, I was like, wow, I didn't know robots were that good, even though. You know, we have these unrealistic expectations. People want these, like, iRobot robots, which can climb buildings and run and jump and do all these crazy uh, things. You know, the level at which our robotics is at is still very impressive. We're on the way to having machines that can handle tasks as effectively as any organism can. It just seems like, with all the computing stuff we're doing, we should have better robots. But I, maybe it's because industry has kind of put aside I'm robots for so many years. I'm sorry, you think we should have better robots based on the current level of AI we have? Maybe you ever have a t- AI. <clears throat> Did you ever have a com- sensor process? Did you ever have a conversation with Cleverbot? Man? Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's not yeah. that great. It's not <laughs> that great. But okay, so so the thing is that I've read about this a bit and, and one of the things that I've come upon is that a big disconnect between the way that our current approaches in robotics occur between how our robots actually approach certain tasks and how animals do, is that animals get a number of types of feedback that our machines don't get. So, for instance, tactile feedback. Tactile feedback that our machines get is not nearly as advanced as animals are. If you think about it, your entire body is a tactile feedback sensor. Every single point on the surface of your body is a tactile sensor. 
Wise. You can feel vibrations in your body. You can oh, feel heat everywhere in your body. You can feel pressure. You can feel texture virtually anywhere. Nope. Vir- I have frostbite on the tips of my ears and my nose. Can't feel okay, it. well, you have a, a special problem. <laughs> That's that also is, frostbite. It's because of the frostbite. But you were born with these abilities. Mm-hmm. So a, a big thing That's that I've okay. read about, actually, is is machines are lacking in one crucial sense, and that's texture sensation. When you pick something up, a large piece of information which tells you how to exert forces on it and how hard you need to grip it and how to hold it really comes from how the surface feels. Knowing something about what the friction forces are like due to texture is a huge component of information that machines just don't have. Oh, they've been trying. They've they've been doing so many studies to do artificial skin, artificial sensing skin for years. Yeah, it's just hard. Like upwards of a hard. decade, and farther back than that even. Uh, but yeah, it's hard and it's expensive, especially covering an entire body with it. They can usually just do fingers and like that's it. Maybe fingers and palm of a robot, and even then, it's oftentimes using sur- using uh, materials that are a little too fragile to be able to really do tough handling shit. A lot of things are polymer-based. I've seen a lot of these, um, you know, like a, some sort of piezoelectric polymer or something like that, and mm-hmm. they, they can't handle large number of cycles. That's one of the things that I've seen a bit in the world of actuators. I used to read a bit about, like, polymer-based actuators or material-based actuators where there's some sort oh, of deformation yeah. in the material. This has been so frustrating. Yeah, they, they, actually, that, I, my... Uh, my undergrad senior project was I, I basically made little little mini uh, like actuators, and I ended up coding simulations for geometries of how you could create actuators which would maximize actuator material and stuff like that. And the the basic problem is that I never got anything that survived more than a few cycles, and you know it's fair to say I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I you know I I read from people who did know what they were doing, typical number of cycles, 500. 500 cycles? That's, that's useless. That's you can't make an actuator of 500 cycles. It's yeah, you can't sell something that yeah. lasts 500 cycles. It, you'd have, a, you'd have your, your robot lasts for an hour. Like, it's... it's <laughs> yeah. Guys, well, I hate to... I mean, I, this is a good conversation, but we should probably move on. It's almost 10 o'clock, and we have not sure. gotten past the first story yet. Yeah. This is at least more relevant than time travel Time and travel, man. And radiation hardening. Well, not no, radiation hardening was sort of relevant. Oh, yeah. All right. We move from robotics well, to space. Cameron's going to wow us with this dazzling transition. Yeah, space all right. Is, don't worry Some of us aren't very okay. impressed with these uh, this year's robotics. Hopefully we will be next year. Uh, but since we aren't uh, really sailing into our current expectations of the future, we <sighs> could uh, talk about some solar sails instead. I hate but, you. Um, I hate you so much. Anyway, okay. We went so, to space. <laughs> <laughs> so space, this space, space, yes, please, space. This next paper is from the 
archive. We got it from uh, MIT Technology Review's uh, Emerging Technology from the Archive blog. So this is a preprint of a paper, and the title is Fast E-Sail Uranus Entry Probe Mission. Okay, yes, we're trying to probe Uranus, we know. <laughs> I've probed it yes. twice. So, and the title of the, the actual article is New Form of Spacecraft Propulsion Proposed for Uranus Mission. What kind and of yes, propulsion? Yes, I used both Space pronunciations. Okay, but here... New Form of Spacecraft Propulsion. Okay, so does somebody want to explain very quickly how this propulsion system works? Yeah, I can do that. I think I understand to a degree, but I, I, I have a question about it. Okay, well but then let me start with it. You tell me. So, many, a lot of people already know about the solar sails. That a solar sail is this big giant sail that is probably something like mylar, mylar, oh, or aerogel is another uh, is another material is proposed. Is aerogel very reflective? No, it's not reflective at all. So it only gets half of it. The it point captures is, the mass. The point of the mylar is to have it like you know uh, with party balloons. It's mylar, and then there's the aluminum on top of it. Yeah, so but it's super reflective. The mylar is the film anyway, that actually holds the, the gas in. But that's the not the but point. But the concept is that so solar the, sail captures uh, the the pho photons. The, yeah, the light from the, the sun it bounces, bounces off of it, and that each photon it. has a little bit of momentum that when it bounces back, yep. it has to go to the sail. So the sail picks up that You would normally not think of a photon as having any mass, but it still has momentum. So bouncing back a photon still pushes on it really lightly. So you point this sail at the sun, and you can go away from the sun. Yes. So what this... The concept behind that is... Yeah, that's that, a solar and that's sail. What, that's what solar wind is, right? Yes. Well, no, that's different. This, this is okay. a nice new form of propulsion, and this is called an e-sail. So it's an electronic solar sail, and this one is based off of the solar wind. Solar wind is ions that come from the sun... Mm -hmm. And these are, yeah, it's ionized gases and particles that are shot off from the sun, and they fly around. It's just like normal wind, except it's all throughout the solar system. The net charge of it, though, is neutral, though, isn't it? Okay, so from Wikipedia, the solar wind is a stream of charged particles released from the upper atmosphere of the sun. It's electrons and protons with energies between 1.5 and 10 kiloelectron volt. You would probably know, like, when a wind of electrons is coming towards you and a wind of protons is coming towards you then. So that way you could modulate the polarity of your solar sails. So these solar sails are... You could always make bloopers. I always want to hear bloopers. Yeah. All right. So the way this thing actually works is that it's this big, like, bicycle wheel sitting behind the spaceship. Spaceship's this little thing dot in the middle. Solar panels on the spaceship, or the battery that we already have, collect the light, and they create charge a battery, and then this battery is used to create an electric field in the circle of the E-sail. And this E-sail will have a positive charge on one end and a negative charge on the other side, like, throughout the center. So that okay. way it's it's opposing whatever charge the solar wind has. So the solar wind will come in with the momentum, it'll be slowed down, and then it'll bounce off, it'll be repelled, so you get double the momentum kick from it. Right. And they said that for a, I think it's a one-meter circle, I can't remember the diameter of the sail, uh, and I didn't write that in my notes, 
but for the sale on this uh, 550 kilogram craft, you would get 0.5 newtons of propulsion, which would correspond to one millimeter per second squared of acceleration, constant. And this mm-hmm. would get a ship, a craft from Earth to Uranus in six years. So one question I have about this. That's traveling at full speed. Traveling at, that's without any other propulsion. That's just this thing. And accelerating the entire time without slowing down. Accelerating the entire time. And then it would have a deceleration, a separate propulsion for decelerating there. I have a question. Yeah. Are the solar winds constant enough for that to maintain? Because they they shift between one and the other. And it doesn't, the acceleration doesn't have to be constant. Just your velocity has to be constant. Since there's nothing to slow you down, you get a little bit of acceleration. Because you're accelerating for six years, it ends up being really fast. Right. I think they mm-hmm. said the, the maximum, the end speed is like 22 kilometers per second. I read at 20 kilometers per second. Right. Yeah. So it ends up going really fast. And they talk about, this paper specifically talks about this as a completely independent propulsion system with only like a, a reverse jet at the end to slow down so you don't just crash into the planet and die. Mm. Well, that's... But I'm saying that's the issue that that I saw that was the biggest problem with this entire system. There are a lot of advantages to the system. The fact that there's a lot of advantages to the system, one of which is that it's very fast. It takes, they were saying, six years to get to Uranus when it took six years to get to Jupiter with conventional, you know, technology, with the conventional technology they're using currently. Uh-huh. But the problem is those Gemini and uh, Gemini uh, satellites would stay in orbit above Jupiter for decades, collecting data. Whereas this has, it appeared to have no recourse other than crashing directly into the planet. I think they included re- the reverse jets, though. They included the like compressed gas for a reverse jet at the end. Is that in the mass in the what? mass that they calculate, and that's what they use. That's what like Gemini uses. These the other probes that we've sent out. What are you looking for? But this is going much faster than Gemini. No, it's not going faster. Because had Gemini continued on to Uranus, it would have only taken 3.8 years. And that's including the gravity slingshot and a 10 Newton main thruster. So this is only half of a Newton. Did you say Uranus or Uterus? Uranus Uranus or Uranus are the two okay ones. But... (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson told a story about it, and he said when they called it Uranus in the past, kids would make fun of it because it's had the word urine in it. So they changed it to Uranus, and now kids make fun of it because it has anus. So there's just no, there's no way. Yeah. Anyway. We're going to call it Pluto. <laughs> we'll call it planet number, planet number seven. The planet who shall not be named. <laughs> Why don't they just call it Soul Seven? I don't know. So, because we're soul free. Okay. Well, because that's not a name. It feels very sci-fi if we called it soul free. Yeah, but none of our other planets have names like that. We're all named after Greek gods. Soul one. Heretic! We are holy Terra! (laughs) Anyway, so it's not that it's super fast, but the point is that you don't have to do this complicated gravitational slingshot. So you can launch a ship 
whenever you want. You can just launch it today. You don't have to wait for the planets to be in the right configuration. I mean, yeah, that's definitely the biggest advantage I yeah. saw. This I mean, you still have to calculate based on where the planets are to see where you're going to end up. But you don't have to rely on it Yeah, as much. You, don't, you can launch at any time because you're not relying on the gravity of other planets to slingshot you around. Uh, and if you combine this with something else, you have a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. What if you do these feel and slingshot? Yeah. So oh there's if you did this and slingshot, you'd be super fast. Uh, and then there's some, there's some other like really low acceleration propulsion systems. There's like this uh, kind of out there, but it's a zero point propulsion system. Madness. Uh, yeah. Uh, can we and, just? Anyway. Establish that zero point energy is a thing first, and then worry about propulsion. I think no. I think it is a thing. I it it is a thing. Madness. It's like I I think maybe zero point energy is a a bad way to say it because there's a lot of fake things that are called zero point uh, energy. Yeah. But zero point energy is just when you get two things, two like sheets close enough to each other, the force of the particles on the outside, because there's fewer particles inside, will push them closer together. Isn't that the Casimir effect or something? That's, it's sort of like the Casimir effect, but that's what this zero-point propulsion is based off of. Yeah, that is, that is the Casimir effect, what I just explained. Okay. And it, it, it's the quantum fluctuations of particles that ends up creating a force outside instead of inside. So somehow people seem to think that or somebody has a scheme where they think that they can make a force in one direction out of this effect. And I don't exactly understand how it works, but... It kind of violates the idea of what a conservative force is. It sort of does, but who knows? I'm not a, a physicist, so until I actually read the paper and say it's impossible, I can't really... Or until I study it, <laughs> I'm not going to argue against people with degrees, as long as it sounds even marginally reasonable. Anyway, so yeah, I think it's a good addition to the other propulsions. Um, they're actually testing this e-sail right now on a CubeSat in Earth orbit. Okay. So that's a really tiny little thing, but it's yeah. still being tested, so that's kind of neat. Um, yeah, does anybody else have anything to say about this? I can't say that I do. But the reason that... Okay, but to transition to our next topic, the reason that we're so... the, the One of the reasons that we need to keep space stations is to test new technology like this in orbit. And that brings us to our next topic, which is that Obama has uh, elected to extend the service life of the ISS to 2020 when it was originally scheduled to be a crash into the Pacific Ocean in 2016. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama! (laughs) Anyway... We'll see you in the next segment about the International Space System. Space Station. International Space Station. Oh my god, are we playing music now? I don't believe in space, I don't think it's real. Now we're back in space, and uh, we're going to talk about 
the uh, International Space Station being extended. So yeah. Well, quite frankly, I think it's a great thing that we're extending the lifetime of the International Space Station because it costs so much money, and to only have it functional for a few years before we decide, let's just crash it unceremoniously into the Pacific Ocean, I think would have been a true waste. Mm -hmm. And the really, truly important part about the ISS is that it provides an existing orbital base from which you can conduct long-term experiments. And this is actually touched on in the articles that Cameron selected for this week. Yeah. That mm -hmm. a long-term zero-G outside of Earth's magnetic field, or at least somewhat outside of Earth's magnetic field base, is really important for testing the long-term survivability of the systems that we want to put in spacecraft that are designed to go to the moon to Mars and we just or anywhere further than that. Anywhere it's, further than that. It's the best it's more importantly it's even if it's not enough, it's still the best we got because Well I best think of if, instead of and I mean obviously there's a lot of logistical problems that come along with maintaining a space station at that like of that size and sophistication. Yeah. Okay, so like they said it's a it bill costs it's a hundred billion to build. It costs a billion, and it costs one to three, three, billion, bill, three a billion a year. That's right to maintain. But this is like the whole world is basically paying for this. So three billion dollars. A lot of to the, keep a, a lot of the, people up there. A lot of the other countries have actually withdrawn their support. Okay, but there's still many. A lot of the major companies are still but, major countries. Well, up there. And, and we're and, getting and government. increasingly non-government uh, affiliated uh, companies are. Are funding the returns to space, space or returns to the ISS and re resupplying. Yeah. Um, SpaceX very famously is the first completely private company to resupply the ISS, and then Orbital Sciences, the company that I formerly worked for, also did work resupplying the mm -hmm. ISS. Their um, their the last ISS resupply mission was actually uh, Cygnus, which was an orbital sciences rocket. Yeah, and that was just a couple of days ago that it even yes. finished. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was that. delayed because of a solar storm. Yes. They couldn't launch the, exactly. the last Cygnus resupply mission. I, for one, am extremely happy that all the private space stuff has not been dominated by one company. I also yes. want to point out that calling orbital sciences a private space company is an absolute misnomer. Nomer. It is no more a private space company oh, than yeah. Lockheed is a private military company. Fair. For the most part, it's private. Yeah, it's a government... All of its money is heavily dependent on the government, government funding. funding. Yeah, well, that's why you it's, lost your contract. Exactly. It's a, cor it's, it's a corporate... It's, it's a corporate nanny's, nanny queen of... <laughs> They depend so much on government money and government contracts for their bread and butter that the second they lose a contract, they're screwed. Yeah, which and is kind of why SpaceX is so great. I mean, it's why they're not as good, and it's why they're sort of why great. SpaceX has a lim has limited capacity compared to a Boeing or a Raytheon or a Lockheed Martin, but it also it's its own thing. And yeah. it is not restricted by the by government practices, and I honestly think SpaceX probably isn't restricted by some of the insane uh, DoD specifications that you go into building um, subcontractor parts for spacecraft. If you have spacecraft that have any sort of like electronic components, there are just 
and this is what I did for my both of my jobs, is that the Department of Defense has these like absurdly stringent requirements for semiconductor parts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's why space spacecraft are basically the same as they were in like 1975. Because <laughs> yeah, just because the new technology isn't proven yet to work in space. Exactly. Right. So yeah. All right. So let's talk about a little bit about what the plan is for the future. So this this plan for a space station is to have these long term experiments that let us test stuff to go in space, stuff that will go in space, and to, so we can practice being in space. What I would also think ideally a lot if you could find a way to make the ISS they, they say I believe in the article that I think it's the longest expected lifetime that they have for it is 2030 yeah 20 yeah 2030 is about the longest it's supposed to last um, and they've they been like fuck. like even China has been sort of planning to build another space station in 2020 because they don't think that the United States will continue funding it past that well but that's my but if they could find a way to make a much more much more permanent orbital station, uh-huh, a and, higher orbit or something, and actually just kind of go with uh, maybe they could put it on the Lagrange point between the moon and Earth. That That's would be, well. That, you should explain what that is a little bit. The Lagrange point is a it's, it's a gravitationally stable point in an orbit. Well, in in between two celestial bodies, where the Pole between, I guess the best way to describe it is the pole between both of them is the most stable. So you're not gonna, de- your orbit's not gonna decay. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's almost, it's not exactly like, but it's almost like where the point between the Earth and the Moon, where the gravity is equal. So that's exactly one of the Lagrange yeah, that's, points. Yeah, that's one uh, of yeah. them. That's so, that's all. That's also not the best Lagrange point to put something at. No, but it good. is one that you could put stuff at. It's certainly the easiest one to predict where it is. <laughs> Very, very true, and it's probably what it's probably the most stable one. It's just not the it's, best. It's not the most stable. It's one. not the most it's stable? An unstable. L two is an unstable. No, L two is unstable. Yeah, L one is the one that's out beyond the moon. Correct? Yes. Okay. That the one is the one behind the moon that relies on like inertia of the moon and the Earth system moving around the sun, where because of the inertia, the rotational inertia around the sun oh, yeah. and the gravity of everything, and you're dealing with like a four body problem and gets. It, it gets really complicated, but anyway, it's 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 a point where the gravity is basically zero, so you're kind of you could just hang out there. It's 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 much more it's much more stable than staying in a normal orbit. Yeah, but mm-hmm. the, ideally, what you what we want to try to do to go if we wanted to go send manned missions to the out the outer reaches of the solar system, or even just to send efficient missions to the outer solar system. It would be best to have an established base up in space where you could not only just test all your equipment, but you could even mitigate some of the risks and concerns that these governments have about sending loaded rockets into orbit by manufacturing rockets once you're already in space. Manufacturing those uh, rocket rocket filled jets. Yeah. So right now, right now it's like it's like ten thousand dollars a kilogram, or is it one thousand? In mass, yeah, it's I, I think it's probably it's I think it's got to be closer to a thousand. Okay, a thousand dollars. Yeah, I think that's what it must be. The rule of thumb right now is it's a thousand dollars to get one kilogram of mass into orbit, just because it costs that much to have the rocket that take it up there. So 
the idea, the really long term idea is to have this inter- this big space station up in space where you launch all your rockets to Mars and to the moon from there. You build them there, launch them from there, because then it's so much less taxing. You just don't have to get up from the Earth. And eventually, yeah, and eventually, like half of materials will be from asteroids anyway, so it's yeah. probably like. With things like Quiet. planetary sciences, or, 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 yeah, planetary, wait, what is it called? Uh, planetary research. NASA's short to medium long term plan is to, I think they said by 2017 or something, they want to stop launching their own rockets. Because the whole point of NASA is to be like this space exploration agency. They don't need to keep doing the same thing over and over, they're not a taxi service. So what they want to do is they want to turn launching rockets off of Earth over to corporations like Orbital and like SpaceX and all these other companies that are popping up uh, so that these companies launch the rockets and because a company can make it so much cheaper than the government can, <clears throat> theoretically, So with especially with volume. So if they're launching a, a bunch of rockets all the time, it'll be cheaper for NASA to just say, hey... We've got this spaceship that we want to shoot off into space. Can we put it on your rocket instead of NASA building their own rocket and launching it every time? So that's their plan. That would save them a lot of money. Yeah. So that's one of the other motivations for keeping the space station up right now is that it gives these companies motivation to continue building their their own private space things. Since right now SpaceX and Orbital are both refueling Orbital the, the International Space Station, so NASA's paying them, or whoever, everybody who runs the ISS, is paying them to take supplies up. Now, none of these companies have taken people up to the ISS yet, but that will probably be soon. Then pretty soon they'll be taking up more than that. Right. Then they'll just do more and more and more, and it'll be awesome, and then they can just take over for NASA. And NASA can stop wasting their time with the Earth to low Earth orbit, low Earth orbit game. Which is just really expensive and time-consuming. Again, a lot of this also depends on... NASA is not necessarily wasting their time. They're wasting their budget. And yeah, you know, that is a product of the fact that NASA's budget is... It's nothing in comparison to the military budget. And the military money is actually what's funding a lot of these resupply missions, especially the ones through orbital... The Department of Defense is Orbital's biggest customer. Well, it's, sorry, it's their biggest customer by proxy after Boeing, okay. who buys all of their rockets and then launches them into space. Yeah. So, so uh, it's more of a it's more of a government funding is applied in stupid and idiotic ways, and I think. Then there's space. I don't think SpaceX receives that much government funding. Though. No, I'm not. I'm again. I'm not saying SpaceX, but also I think SpaceX, in comparison to orbital sciences, doesn't do as many resupply missions. That's true. Orbital, I think, honestly, but I think honestly, one of the best things that can happen to our space programs is that truly private companies like SpaceX take over. The concept of low Earth orbit. I agree. Resupply. Yeah, it should be them completely. Because the tendency for military contractors doing it is to waste a lot of money. And it's not so much because they are malicious or 
stupid, it's because inefficiency has no consequences when you work for the government. And just because it's it's such a big machine, when you're the biggest, I think Lockheed Martin is the largest company in the world, or... No, they're not. Procter & Gamble's bigger. Okay. They're, the big, they're definitely one of the biggest aerospace companies. Boeing and Lockheed Martin are behemoth. They're pretty close. They're just so they're, big. They're behemoth companies with hundreds of thousands, literally over 100,000 employees each. And it's just... It's easy to become incredibly inefficient. When you're in such a big machine. Exactly. Yeah. And I think... Yeah. But I think that the fact that they're... That a lot of their business is sponsored by the government... Uh-huh. Encourages that kind of inefficiency. A little bit, yeah. Well, hopefully it'll let NASA... Continuing in this way, we'll let NASA get back to their, their real mission of doing the crazy space exploration. Boldly going where no man has gone before. There you go. It's I stole the words right out of my mouth. Their five-year journey to explore new worlds. <laughs> well, this is a new generation, which is their continuing journey. Their continuing journey. It's not a continuing journey. It's a continuing mission. And also, the next generation sucks. I said it. Whoa. Picard, Kirk is better than but Picard. But it was more than five years. Kirk is better than Picard. What's up? Let's get Picard. What's up? Captain Jean-Picard. Of the new SS. Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc. Make, 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 make it so. Make, make it so. Engage. <laughs> Engage. All I know about space is people are skeptical that rockets work in space because there's no air to push on. And I tried to explain this, explain this to somebody one time and it was a very long explanation that he didn't understand. And so the end of this blurb is that I not no no don't no thing about space, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> saying? You're saying that people don't understand Newton's second law? No third law. Third? Wait, I'm yeah, sorry. Third I don't law. know the laws in order. Third reaction there is a lot of reactions. That's in anyway <clears throat> I will leave you with a quote from Philip J. Fry. Space. It's big. Really, really big. And when you get to the end of it, there's a gorilla, and he starts throwing barrels at you. Circle in, Ambrose. Well, I guess that's everything we have to say about the International Space Station. That's pretty rad. It is. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> I, genu- I genuinely mean that. Thanks, Obama. For extending it, but he did yes. cancel that moon program, which we, we actually didn't talk about that. So The, the moon program <laughs> is... What are you going to do with the moon? So, you they, think? the initial plan, though, was to build for United huh. for NASA to build a moon base and to just get rid of the ISS. We would use the ISS money to build a moon base and then launch everything from there. Which moon base is, probably makes more sense. It, it does a it. Little bit. Does it really? It's it's further away. But it's in more I mean, gravity well than the It would be way easier to maintain a moon base than even a base of the Lagrange. Yeah, but the, the thing is, like, once you're on the moon, you're on the moon. You don't really have to worry about, like, your orbit. Yeah, but then you have to get well, off. but then you have, then to, get, have, to, get you have to get to the moon. the moon and then back from the right, moon. Right, it takes more. It takes plus the energy to get off the moon and to get off the Earth. Yeah, it's a little is bit larger. It's, it doesn't. It's 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 one of those things where you have to really think about the. You have to really sort of weigh the benefits of having a moon base versus a, a base at a Lagrange point. Yeah, it does at least require a lot less power to get out of lunar gravity than it does to get out of Earth Absolutely. gravity. Yeah, but it's but still power. You have to, it's still I, power, and you still that, have that's, to, That was going to be the next And you I still either that. have to take that fuel to the moon from Earth or find a way to synthesize it on the moon. point Oxygen is, of all of this, is that it's sweet that we're saving the ISS for at least another six years. Yeah, it's that's sweet. Rad. It's pretty sweet. I would like to have a moon base and the ISS, but if we can't have both, 
ISS is cheaper for now, and maybe if, I'm sure eventually we'll maybe have a we moon can base. Do, maybe we can convince the the Bank of America to contribute some of its massive, horrible, illegal profits to you know spend them on a moon base. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the Laser Podcast. Um, if you want to find any links to any of the stories we talked about, they'll be in the show notes on the website, laserpodcast.com. Uh, if you want to send us an email, you can contact me at Cameron at laserpodcast.com or just an email to contact at laserpodcast.com. If you want to contact us on Twitter, we are at laserpodcast. Uh, and we're on Facebook. Just search for Laser Science Podcast or Laser Materials Podcast. Uh, if you are on iTunes, please leave us a review and, and or rating because uh, iTunes has this weird thing where people – it doesn't show up as a suggestion unless it, the podcast has some reviews and ratings. And I don't think we have any right now. So nobody new is finding us on iTunes. Um, we're also on Stitcher Radio. Uh, find us, Leave us a review or rating there. And – I think that's all. So uh, have a have a good night. You guys have anything else to say? Sign off. Bear in mind, laser is spelled with an S, not a Z, like I thought it should be. Yeah, laser is L A S E R. It's light amplification through stimulation, stimulated emission, yeah, stimulated emission of radiation. Yep. Or in our case, it's let's agree, science and engineering are rad. I thought it was just short for laser. <laughs> it it just makes me want to dance, right? I just want to laser sounds. I have a good evening. Very brief. Have a good, good, uh, good. Thanks for listening. This has been the Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. If you can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast or find us on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about, in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye. podcast ending with all of us jumping out up in the air and freeze frame <laughs> yay laser we can find film that we caution laser caution laser perfect all right i like well, to think that there's just a lot of really good food
His face? Because I'm really hungry right now. That's the reason, <laughs> the reason why. I'm going to go get a burrito after this. Okay. I want a burrito did too, but I have to go there pizza? and I can't get there because I'm drunk. I can't. Of course we did. What are you talking about? There's a burrito place right across the street. Yeah. He also did not. That's not true. You took one of the Uh, of the four required classes. No, I took one. No, you only have to take two of the four classes. Masters. Yeah, I already took the two, so I'm done. Yeah. Also failed to show up for his master's examination. (laughs) Twice. Failed to show up for your master's master's defense. defense. Twice. Twice. I forgot about that. Gives zero (laughs) shit. I ended up doing my master's defense over Skype. Yep. <laughs> HappyValleyNews.wordpress.com The Juggalo Science Fair. Peep the giraffe. Well, you already missed it, but I had to call your attention to the Juggalo Science Fair, which was held on Saturday at San Francisco's Warfield Theater before an insane clown posse concert. This was a real event and was sponsored by the San Francisco nonprofit Noisebridge to explain the science con- scientific concepts behind some of the miracles discussed in ICP's anthem to the willful 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 uh, uh, to willful ignorance miracles. <laughs> Explaining basic science to the ICP fan base just before a show sounds like a dubious undertaking, but what do I know? A being filled to the gills with a toxic combo of orange fago and meth puts one in the perfect mental space for some book learning. From the Science for Juggalos wiki, a testimonial. I am a scientist, and I have a PhD, and I love ICP's music, and a moderately insane amounts of Fago. Scientist Juggalo is not an oxymoron. Dr. Sizgi. I don't believe this. (laughs) Kind of sounds like how TIE Fighters work. How how do TIE Fighters work? TIE Fighters, actually, you know the ion engines? Um, that can work by nuclear or solar propulsion. Mm-hmm. Tie fighters are actually just uh, solar powered ion engines. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're, 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 but they, but they have photovoltaic panels, that and then they power the sun to absorb charge from the sun. Yeah, ion engines and, are a different thing, though. No, ion no, solar panels. Actually, just, yeah, but, no, but, the, but I'm saying that the solar uh, the solar panels on tie fighters are designed to absorb. That sort of Catch on it wins, or to absorb light and form electron hole pairs like a normal form yeah, of tank. I, I think I think the panels on a Tie Fighter just. I have the function. I have to look up the fake science of Star Wars. <laughs> Excuse me, I'll be doing that while you guys talk about this. Crap. Okay. Well, there anyway, so much. Greg, I got laid off because we have no money to give to space people. No, so, you got laid too? off because... Yeah, because there's no money to give to space people. They gave it to them later. They just didn't give it to you for a few days, and then you got fired because of it. Yeah, it sucks. Don't be a contractor, kids. This has been a PSA for space systems. You can open the candy now, and then we'll... I can also, like, walk away from the microphone and do it. Are you just trying to make as much noise as possible out there? I'm taking it off myself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Almost there's more than that. There's more. All right. I like to eat all of the chocolates last time. Before your final. I came in. He had all his candies. I just went. I just ate. I ate about 15 of these. And I went and took I was like opening them rapidly and eating them. And then I just quickly was like, time for my final. And I went to my final. <laughs> All right. I gotta be in that class. I don't know how I gotta be in that class. Sugar high. 
So oh. this is the first. I have. Yeah. I have exposed like, the terrible flaw in the Terminator movie. Terrible. I don't want. Don't tell me because I haven't seen them. Terrible flaw. Time travel is stupid. No, is that the ba- terrible no? Flaw? What happens is, is basically what happens is they, they're talking about time travel a little bit, and he says something which exposes the idea that they understand how time travel works, and that there are multiple timelines. And I'm sure you're aware of the idea Isn't that, that the s- there's two different types of ways in which time travel could work. One is that there's one timeline. And if you, you go back in the, in the, into the past, you could change the future by changing the past. The other idea is that if you go back into the past, anytime you jump across time, you en- enter another timeline. Therefore, anything you do there affects that timeline and would not affect the, the present timeline. that you came from. I think it's every time you go back in time, you create a new timeline. That's the Back to the Future way. Right, so but even you're so, not, it's it's not they like, didn't do that for the first Back to the Future movie, though. They did it for the second one, though. Yeah, because they decided the first one was dumb. But the, the same the same problem still occurs. In that movie, she asked him, so you're from the future? He says, yes, uh, one possible future, or something like that. What he's alluding to is that they understand how time travel works, and that when you go back in time, you create a new timeline. Or there are multiple timelines, and when you go back in time, you alter a timeline other than your own. What that means is the whole point of going back in time to change what's going on in order to affect the future doesn't work. It will not affect the future that he came from. It'll simply affect but the future in another timeline. It makes the entire point of the movie invalid. It'll affect the future that he goes back but to. You can't, the but you can't go back about. to the original timeline anyway, so yeah. there's no point in going back to it and being, oh, darn, we didn't change it. Because you can't with that formula of time travel. It's you wind up staying in that timeline. Yeah, but if he went, if he went, if he went into the future, let's say, let's say he had a way to do it, even though he Mm. probably doesn't. Let's say he had a way to go into the future again. Would he end up on the same timeline that he came from in the first place? Would he remain on the same timeline that he just affected, or would he end up on another one? That depends on the fictional universe you're dealing with. Because um, for most of them, the conventional rule is: if you go back in time, you create a new universe. If you go forward in time, you stay in the same one, or you jump into a new one that's so similar to the old one to, to the one you're jumping from. That doesn't matter. Laser Material Science Podcast, where you come for all of your hard-hitting material science news. This isn't material science at all. This is Take not, the this words is, out of my this, mouth. this is nerds arguing about bull****. Because you there's only, movie time travel. Because there's only one time travel movie that matters, and it's Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> Which was accurate. I agree. It was very accurate. Actually, I haven't seen it. Hot Tub Time Machine was a great time travel movie. Okay, well, we'll have to watch it later. It was great. It was as a, it's a bonus commentary track for this episode. As, a, yeah, as a time travel movie, it was very good. As a normal movie, it was pretty funny. 